Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And with us today is Chris of Terrible Book Club. Hi, it's me. Chris has come to tell us about what again? The collectability and marketing of audio equipment, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. You know, we're all here. We're podcasters. And there's one thing we're familiar with. It's how much of a pain in the butt audio equipment can be. (laughs) And I want to talk about how it's a pain in the butt. The way things are priced and um, marketed, I guess, is, is sort of my angle on this. By no means an expert collector of like vintage audio gear which is what I am going to try to talk a little bit about today because that comes so much into play with even modern stuff. But uh, sort of giving the consumer of tools perspective on this. So you know what these objects are used for and what they can do and why they should have value, if any? Yes, absolutely. From the functional, practical perspective, yes. Excellent. So I guess the way I would like to start is I kind of wanted to ask you guys, do you think there's anything comparable in the realm of antiques or collectibles in terms of objects that are coveted for things besides their intended use necessarily sometimes just plain even though they are a tool that people assumedly would want to use sometimes it's more about the particular rarity of it or where that tool was used before and by whom spirit boxes yeah that's a good one i don't know what that is oh you're gonna hate this so you take an old radio Uh uh-huh you take the seek button You break the seek button so it doesn't stop when it hits a clear station. It continues seeking. And then you bring it to a haunted house and you make it seek and you don't let it stop seeking. And then every time it hits a clear station for a fraction of a second, you pretend it's a ghost talking to you. What? But this only works on particular old radios because newer radios cannot have the seek button broken in that same way. So now certain old junk radios are worth a lot of money because you can turn them into a quote unquote spirit box and flip them for like $200. Yeah, it is also supposedly the reason that, so there are like wilderness survival radios that work the same way as the old radios for interest of being able to pick up multiple waveforms. Their price is also extremely elevated for how simple an object it is, and it has been suggested to me that it is because of their popularity for being broken into sparrow boxes. Okay, A, this is actually a hilarious new dimension (laughs) of modified audio equipment that I had never considered before. B, is that why the band is called that? There's the band that I really like called Spirit Box. I have no idea. I've never heard of that. I imagine. It's <laughs> gotta be, right? I thought they were just like yeah, talking about Ouija boards in a weird way or something. Oh, no. Oh, my friend. Oh, that's a whole thing. Oh, jeez. Well, you clearly you guys know more about audio equipment than me, so I don't even know what I'm doing here. <laughs> well, it's been great having you, Chris. <laughs> no, only about ghost audio equipment. We only know how to find ghosts. We don't know anything else. (laughs) Ghost podcasting. (laughs) Only for ghost podcasting. Okay. I guess besides podcasting, have you guys ever had any exposure to like audio gear marketing, musical equipment marketing or anything like that? No, I have not. I have. I grew up with my dad who is a musician. And as such, I have been jumped in on all of the didgeridoos and ding dangs that frequently come with audio recording. (laughs) For music, specifically. <laughs> oh, fun. Cool. So have you heard stuff about tone woods before or tubes versus solid states? What? Tubes versus solid states. Yes, I do know about that. And I hate to bring this up twice in one discussion, but because there was a man at the antique shop who thought that certain kinds of tubes could make ghosts happen. And that is how I learned about <laughs> tubes versus solid state amps. <laughs> Wait, was he specific? Like, well, EL34s bring out thinner sounding ghosts, but for me, 6L6s have a really sort of higher output, more warm bodied ghost kind of. It was that. No. <laughs> I'm imagining that guy. <laughs> I wish. That's me dropping tube type names because, yes, I know about tube type names from having to buy fucking audio equipment. Yeah, he didn't know the type names. He just knew that tubes possibly uh, vibrated. <laughs> at a different frequency that spirits could sort of hang on to. Okay. All right. Like a fern gully river sequence. I never thought about the ghost audiophile angle. Holy shit. (laughs) So uh, that is how I know about that. Okay. Well, 
as an audio equipment consumer slash user, a lot of it can be based around older stuff, vintage stuff, the vintage guitar, and even like the vintage audio processor. Like those things will go for ludicrous sums of money. Sometimes for, you know, well, it's an old instrument that there's an antique value to it because it's rare, which, you know, that's true of anything, right? If it's old and you can't find it anywhere, the price gonna go up. Something, something Stradivarius. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so, I mean, you have guitar stores out there that cater exclusively to this because you can sell like, um, I don't know, a 60s or 50s Gibson for upwards of 10K if it or more if it's in good condition. What? what? That's not even that much in comparison to like modern Gibson guitars are upwards of like three to five thousand dollars, which I don't think is really worth it for a production line guitar. But that's a whole other um, opinion there. Yeah. What? Yeah. There. So even even Gibson itself is mostly resting on like vintage brand name kind of stuff where like everyone kind of knows the Gibson guitar like even you have probably heard of them before yeah but like I didn't hear of them being 10k holy shit uh, so that's again it's very particular pieces um I'm again I'm no collector but like if you hit if you find like a legitimate 50s 60s sometimes even 70s Les Paul guitar SG that kind of a thing in good condition easily eight to twelve thousand dollars like without even blinking probably like that kind of a thing yeah i think my dad actually might have one. Oh, okay i'll keep an eye out yeah yeah the uh the, the guitar hunters were second only to the stradivarius hunters in terms of like all right yeah buddy this one's gonna be it for sure <laughs> I mean, and that's electric instruments, which are a little bit easier to maintain and therefore have a little bit more survivability. Your acoustic guitars can be anywhere up for to like 20K, 25K sometimes if you find the right Martin, especially like Martin guitars, like really old vintage Martin guitars can get quite high up there. And it's not like the functionality is going to be, you know, three to seven times of like a modern production Martin, which could run you also like 3K, 5K, something like that. What, you're telling me that a vintage Martin won't make me Jimi Hendrix? So that's kind of like the whole point of what I want to get at here is that... For so long, I've I've had to try to, you know, especially when you're up and coming, like, there are people on internet forums, of course, the, the, the bastion of knowledge anywhere. The smartest people are always on internet forums, of course. Oh, for sure. <laughs> always on internet forums. And, like, they will swear up and down, like, the old ones got that mojo. The old ones just sound better. Like, the, the wood is, I don't know, like, worn in or baked in. Oh, do you guys know about relict instruments? No. No, do tell. Okay, so this is um, usually sort of like a Fender, especially kind of custom shop thing. Sometimes you might see it on Gibsons, but it is making a new fresh guitar from the ground up, modern year production and everything in by like, you know, the custom shop luthiers for Fender and Gibson. But then they'll fuck up the paint and strip it and make it look like it's been banged around like a tour van for, I don't know, a couple of decades no! for that vintage mojo. Like distressed jeans? What? What? Is this done for aesthetics or because it'll sound different, quote unquote? Aesthetics. It's purely an aesthetic thing. Like, no one's like... Oh, okay. They don't think that, like, I beat it up and now it sounds good? I think only there's, like, maybe two or three dudes out there that truly think it actually makes it sound better. But it's purely, like, I bought this expensive thing. I want it to look like it's been traveling in a case for decades. It's distressed jeans from Express. Yes. Except it's a guitar. Yes, correct. Wow. Absolutely correct. Oh my god, I'm so mad. Wowie zowie. <laughs> Absolutely correct. And that's not even getting to the other point um, that I wanted to talk about, which is that a lot of even modern equipment is seeking to emulate older vintage equipment that goes for thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars because, you know, it supposedly sounds better. The one big thing, so D, you might know about the whole tubes versus solid state thing, but Ken, do you know, like we talk about vacuum tubes in Karnacki stories a lot. Have you ever encountered those before? Do you know what those are? I know what they are. They break easily. Yes, they're very fragile. I don't like them. Very fragile. They like always wear down with time. They're, they're not something that will stand the test of time and were quickly replaced by just transistors very quickly in electronics because those are sturdier and they last way longer and often function better. And they don't shatter in your hand and release poisonous gases. Yes. However. They do? Uh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, D, don't fuck around with any old televisions, D. Anyway, uh... <laughs> Absolutely do not fuck around with old TVs. Well, vacuum tubes have nothing in them because of the vacuum inside them, but other, like, cathode tubes might have some kind of chemical in them. Oh, okay, yeah, all right, cathodes. Do not right. fuck with tubes. Yeah, no, I do. I yeah. used to do uh, vacuum tubes for radio repair. Yeah, so vacuum tubes are usually more of an audio thing, and up until very recently, especially when you tried to, like, distort a signal, like, let's say with an electric guitar that you want to, like, add a lot of heavy output to tubes just generally saturated differently sounded different in a way that most people would prefer so for decades and decades and decades guitar amplifiers bass amplifiers for a while too but those kind of switched over quicker but especially guitar amplifiers consistently used vacuum tubes for like and still do so a lot of like the higher tier very very expensive guitar amplifiers out there still use vacuum tubes in fact, I have a couple of a couple of them myself that have vacuum tubes in them and like every couple of years or so I have to swap them out and replace them because they break. They break down unlike other pieces of audio equipment I have where the transistor in it just doesn't break ever. But supposedly because it sounds better when you feed it a lot of volume and it distorts in a certain way, that is why we continue to use these things. Huh. For some reason the words planned obsolescence are like rotating slowly in my brain and I feel like it's very profitable to sell a product that breaks easily because you claim it's sounds better but also the customer has to keep coming back to you because the product breaks easily yes i would say yeah yes and no in a way i so i legitimately will say that for the longest time for the longest time for the longest time <laughs> i was waiting for it by, i would stand by the fact that vacuum tube amplifiers just did sound better than solid state amplifiers specifically in distorted guitar situations very specifically in that kind of a thing so if you're doing a post hardcore thing yes exactly if you're doing like jazz, some types of country or like very specific, very clean guitar kind of blues, you could probably get away with like, you know, a totally vacuum tubeless transistor amp. At least until like five years ago, maybe six years ago, when digital modeling technology got good enough that basically those transistors and microchips, the computer brains got smart enough that they can like emulate all the different little frequency and harmonic overtones that are happening in like vacuum tube things. So I myself, about two years ago, switched from having a big old vacuum tube amplifier under my desk for playing guitar, practicing guitar, teaching guitar, to having um, a small little foot pedal the size of, well, my foot. Um, <laughs> that I connect everything through now and it just sounds fine too I've done full-scale shows with my band with it a couple of times before I still will drag out the tube head sometimes though for um certain types of shows depending on what kind of PA system they have essentially <laughs> All right, I've been gabbing a lot here, I feel like, but... I mean, we did bring you on specifically to gab. True, but I... Yeah, but I mean, like, I feel like I've learned so much already. Yeah, I mean, you know, as soon as you give a gear nerd any chance to speak his <laughs> mind about gear, I'm sure they'll go off for 10 minutes like this. Welcome but... to the premise of our podcast, Chris. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, recently I did go off about pots that you literally poop in for a while. So it's like a, <laughs> I like that episode yeah. quite a bit, actually. Thank you. I never knew there were so many pots you could poop in in different kinds. You can poop in any kind of pot. There's so many. I'm going to start posting in chamber pot forums and talking about the differences in feel of the type of pots that I poop in. <laughs> they do that sometimes, though. <laughs> no. They don't talk about the feel. They don't talk about, like, the mouth feel. Oh, God. It's mostly just uh, like most hardcore nerd stuff. It's arguing about cladistics. You know, does a certain like unique type of chamber pot belong as a bedpan or a pop proper chamber pot? Oh, not these improper chamber pots. Or if uh, plastic chamber pots should be excised completely. That would be a very rude way to not include our very good Ronald Reagan chamber pot. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, well, if you guys don't have any immediate questions, I thought I'd kind of hop off on a couple of, I don't know, pet peeves of mine, I suppose, about all this. Oh, we love pet peeves. Isn't that a brand of amp? The pet peeve? <laughs> 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 really very bad joke good one d i like that one see that that's a gear nerd <laughs> joke right there there's a pv amplifier in my closet right now that's the one i switched off of to turn into my foot pedal <laughs> oh no it's been retired sort of yes it's, it's sitting up on the shelf Anywho, so when you think about instruments, you think about stuff that they're made out of. So one of the big areas, I kind of mentioned this before, especially with guitars, which is my sort of area that I consume instruments in since I'm a guitar player, um, is wood. 
And so a lot of the reason the price went up even in the last five, again, five, 10 years or so for certain kinds of vintage guitars is that you can't make guitars out of those woods anymore because those woods are endangered oh. and protected. Oh. So stuff like Brazilian rosewood, that used to be a thing on fretboards for a lot of guitars. Still can be sometimes, but it I think it's still endangered at this point. And so there's been a lot of like teeth gnashing amongst, you know, guitar collectors and guitar players because, oh no, you can't get a Brazilian rosewood fingerboard anymore. Now we have to use Pau Ferro instead. Oh, heavens no. Oh, goodness how crass. So there is a certain specialty furniture company that operates locally that I know for a fact is that just like chucking out hunks of exotic wood that they don't need into a dumpster every day. <laughs> yeah, what do they do with that? Encouraging employees to take bits of it home for projects like so maybe the guitar people should like tap into whatever wood vein these guys have going yeah on. well because yeah there are certain with those endangered woods there are certain like reclamation laws for like small scale use because trees do just die sometimes yeah so a great example actually is gibson once again uh gibson guitars was raided by the federal government in 2012 <laughs> And had pallets of wood taken from their factories because they were continuing to use endangered woods to be able to sell their Gibson Les Pauls with, oh, it's got the Brazilian rosewood or the ebony. Ebony was another like wood oh, species God, that oh, is kind of falling, you know, harder and harder to find. I have a guitar sitting across from me right now with an ebony fretboard um, that I probably couldn't get anymore. I got that guitar like a decade ago. And I, I think at the time the wood wasn't endangered. I kind of hope. I did specifically choose Ebony because I like the look of it, but nothing to do with the sound or anything. <laughs> so I could have contributed to that unwittingly without realizing that it was endangered at the time. Yeah, you kind of assume if something's available for purchase, it isn't actively endangered. You would assume. That's the human assumption, yeah. Yeah, until Gibson gets their factory raided by the federal government and yeah. has several pallets of wood taken. <laughs> Oops. So, I mean, you have a lot of, like I said, guitar enthusiasts out there sort of gnashing their teeth, as I said before, about like, oh, I can't get my preferred tone wood anymore. It's not the same if I don't have a rosewood neck or a toasted maple fretboard or you can still get maple. Then plant an <laughs> acre of it yourself. Toasted maple. Oh, yeah. Toasted maple's a thing. That's not up. So that maple isn't really endangered as far as I know. But I use that phrase simply because um, there was a guitar builder recently who got caught a lot of heat because they started doing this thing with their fretboards where they would use maple wood and they would like put it in the oven a little bit too long it's like the toasty cheese it's but for guitar fretboard woods oh my god they're trying to accidentally invent guitar cornflakes yeah well so it like has a certain burnt look to it kind of and people not really burnt but like just like a little darker version of maple yeah and one guy on some guitar forum got like his custom guitar and he's like well this doesn't really look toasted to me and then the the luthier himself like went on the forum and was like, well, you don't know what you're talking about because you don't build guitars and you're not here toasting maple necks. And it became this whole huge controversy. Wow. You know, do you even fucking toast, bro? Yeah, people get stupid about wood. And it's like, do they ever? I have not heard any convincing evidence on, on an electric guitar specifically that it has major, major differences in the sound quality. For me, I think it's mostly pickups that you're using, the actual things that are amplifying the strings on the guitar, the pickups, which are basically just a magnet with a bunch of wire wrapped around it to create an electromagnetic field. The way you wrap the wire and the kind of wire you use and the magnets you use are going to have a bigger effect on the sound than the wood itself. From what I, from my own opinion, I bet there's some guitar players out there that will hear this and jump upon me and send me to an early grave for saying that. But that's just what I think. I can't wait for them to find you, a VR podcast. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't want you to be killed. So there's a consideration to be made here where the people are getting up in arms about endangered species of plants and wood to supplement their guitar playing habit or collection. And like some people will collect guitars, not even really play them and just, you know, try to flip them or resell them like houses almost based purely on like, you know, technical specifications, like what kind of wood they're made out of and what year it came out and like the brand name and stuff like that. Which, as a consumer, is kind of revolting because you're taking a tool that, you know, maybe I want to use in a specific way, and you're jacking up the value because, oh, well, this wood isn't, you know, around anymore. Which, again, I understand rarity does take account into, you know, how 
things are priced, but I don't know, just the whole tone wood thing is a specific pet peeve of mine. <laughs> so the tone wood is not real, in your opinion? In my opinion, like this is a heavily debated thing. I cannot scientifically say for sure one way or the other, but there was a recent video that I did see on YouTube that attempted to make a scientific experiment out of it where a dude took a couple of different types of guitars that were basically still like the same body shape and construction style, and he swapped out like the same pickup, that, that thing that picks up the strings on electric guitars um and it had different woods and it and he put it through like the same amps so the only thing that was really changing was like the particular type of wood in this body shape of guitar and to my ears it sounded dang the same and then he strung some guitar strings across basically like a wood table frame so there wasn't even any wood under it. It was just the strings taut on like the outsides of like a table frame, strung taut, tuned up to pitch, pick up underneath it. He strummed that, he put that into a guitar amplifier. It sounded the damn same to me. <laughs> so that convinced me once and for all that if there's no fucking wood under it and it sounds pretty close to the same, even if there was a little minute difference, it doesn't matter. No one's gonna catch that shit, especially in a mix of live music where there are other instruments going. Holy shit. Wow, you're blowing this wide open. Especially not in your post-industrial noise band. Exactly. Which I'm not entirely sure is a real genre. It is. <laughs> I've done it, I have. But yeah, if you're using your guitar in there, I don't think anyone's going to be able to pick up the difference between your mahogany-bodied guitar and your, I don't know, wenge-bodied guitar or whatever you're doing there. What is wenge? I think we usually pronounce it wenge because we've never yeah. heard it pronounced by someone who knows that it should be pronounced before. Oh, I've also never heard of wenge wood. I could be wrong. It's probably wenge and I'm the stupid one. I've only ever seen it written down too. because of that one very specific high-end furniture company I spoke of earlier. <laughs> uh, wenge. It is wenge. Okay, cool. Point to Chris. I was right about a pronunciation for once. Well done. Shout out to wooddatabase.com. <laughs> <laughs> Sick. Okay, my next interesting story for you guys is the case of the Klon Centaur. You don't say. Oh my god, a new Karnaki story, finally? Right, yeah, you would think it's some kind of Dungeons and Dragons monster or something like that. But Klon is a brand of guitar pedals. It's a. It's actually one guy from Cambridge, Massachusetts, actually, Bill Finnegan. Oh, in the 60s, he created an overdrive pedal. So if you don't know what that is... Basically, the early sounds of distorted guitars were basically people turning the amplifier up way too high, and the signal would distort, which gave you your sort of like edgy, gritty blues sound, which eventually developed further and further into heavier blues rock, ACDC kind of stuff, and then yada, 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 death metal happened, and all that stuff. But the overdrive is what we would call when we're overloading the signal to such a degree that we are getting a distorted sound. However, it kind of sucks to have to turn your amp up super loud to do that. So basically floor-based signal processors were invented to put in between your guitar and your amplifier to overdrive the signal before you added all the actual volume to it and you would be able to get that distorted sound at a lower volume, yada, yada, yada. Mr. Finnegan in Cambridge creates his brand of overdrive pedal, the Klon Centaur. And it was one of the first sort of what we call boutique pedal brands. And when we say boutique pedal brands, it basically means non-mass market, sort of like no factory kind of a thing. Someone's probably making it on a very small scale, even though that definition has expanded into actual companies. Like there's one in Akron, Ohio called Earthquaker Devices that some people might call boutique simply because it's not made in a factory. It's made in a small factory by like 15 people <laughs> instead of a big factory with 100 people. That kind of a thing. Wow. Actually, yeah, to that point, I think Ken's uh, luxury furniture manufacturer still goes by boutique, despite incredible output. Yeah, yeah. they're very good at what they do. I'll give them that. Anywho, Mr. Finnegan's Klon Centaur is a huge smash hit in the 60s, and many famous guitar players are using it. So, of course, it gains some traction, and people really, really want it really bad. But Mr. Finnegan doesn't want to set up sort of a factory or, like, hire other people, so he makes them by hand, one by one, instead. Damn. Good gravy, Mr. Finnegan. So, he stops after a while, and, of course, they become rarer and rarer and rarer. Cut to now, in which one Klon Centaur pedal can go from anywhere between $3,000 and $5,000. If you're looking at recent sales on Reverb.com, a premier audio gear selling website that Etsy recently purchased a couple years ago. Damn. And so these things, they're a simple circuit. It's an incredibly simple circuit. 
it's a couple of knobs, a couple of wires, a couple of resistors, and it makes your sound louder but without actually making it louder. There are hundreds of other overdrive pedals on the market with slightly different circuits, even complete clones of the Klon. There are things out there called Klon clones, of course, spelled with the, the spelling of Klon, which is K-L-O-N. <laughs> the Klon clones. I have one on a pedal board that I use for my live band. It is $40. The components are not that pricey. This guy wasn't even making things that you can't get anymore. They're still plenty buyable at like any sort of electronics outlet where you need resistors, capacitors, that kind of thing. And yet his specific pedal will go for, like I said, anywhere between 3K to 5K, depending on if you have the horsey version or the non-horsey version. <laughs> no, okay. Is horsey some sort of music term I don't know? Or does it have a horsey on it? No, the horsey version has a picture of a centaur on it. Oh, Hell yeah! Okay. And the non-horsey version does not have a picture of a centaur on it. <laughs> okay, okay. That's it. And that's a 1K difference. Hey, listen, that's money well spent, that is, if it gets me a picture of a horse. But here's the thing. The clones that you can buy for much less money, even the more pricey clones at around $100, $200, they have a picture of a horsey on them as well to let you know what they're ripping off, essentially. <laughs> Oh, dope. <laughs> That's sweet. Bargain horses. Basically, a closer to the Klon Centaur saga is that there was a period of time where Bill didn't want to make more Centaurs, but he kind of wanted to make another sort of overdrive pedal based on it. And he made the Klon KTR Professional Overdrive. And I am actually going to send you guys a picture of the Klon KTR because printed on it is some text. Um, that I think is is pretty wonderful. Yes, yes. The pedal is completely plain aside from the text that is printed directly on it. And I would like one of you to read the text, please. Kindly remember, the ridiculous hype that offends so many is not of my making. <laughs> almost always better, almost always worse. Yes. I love this. He had to print on his, like, second run of pedals, hey, I'm not the one creating this ridiculous hype about this pedal. I just want to build some pedals, dudes. That's it. So please stop emailing me your stupid questions about my very rare pedal that I handmade in the 60s and 70s. This fucking rules. Wow. I love this. Wow. Yes. So that's my favorite button on that kind of story. And this exists for all different types of guitar pedals that were manufactured in the 60s, 70s, perhaps even 80s sometimes. Another fantastic example is the Boss HM2 Heavy Metal pedal, which came out in the 80s and was widely considered a piece of garbage for decades and decades and decades. People write, this sounds like a can people often make the comparison of like a can of bees <laughs> or an angry buzzsaw. Perfect for my post-hardcore can of bees band. That's my favorite sound is that can of bees sound. So Ken, the thing is, is that this was a cheaper pedal and obviously that's kind of why people turn their nose up at it for a bit because like people would be attempting to get certain kinds of metal distortion sounds that were being achieved by, again, very loudly overdriven amps before with a cheap, you know, sort of like maybe around $60, $70 back in the 80s kind of pedal. Bands that didn't have a lot of money would use them. So like Swedish death metal bands that were like teenagers essentially would put them through solid state non-tube amplifiers. Oh my God, the heresy. And they got this specific sound. Now, 30 years later, almost 40 now actually in some cases, the original runs of these that were made in like Japan and Taiwan used to go for anywhere from like $150 to $200 when three or four years before, you know, they were like 50 bucks, 60 bucks. Simply because a bunch of other bands started trying to emulate the sound of those old Swedish death metal bands and sort of just drove up the popularity of them. So bands like Gate Creeper use this a lot and they're trying to emulate stuff like Exhumed or like Old In Flames, even those kind of names if they're familiar to any metal listeners out there. It's again the classic case of like this was a cheap object used out of necessity as a tool by some people. That decades later, it's not the component cost or the manufacturing cost. It's quite simply, well, we think this is the only way to get this sound kind of a thing that drove the cost up. Incredible. That's really remarkable. Anyway, Boss recently released their remake of this pedal anyway, so that kind of dropped the prices down anyway. So 
Thank God for that, I suppose. <laughs> Holy shit, yeah. Oh, man. Cheap knockoffs do have a very important place in the collectibles market, I'll tell you that. So, I mean, again, this is the realm of, like, formites everywhere to argue about whether your cheaper version of the pedal really does sound like the original vintage version or what have you. And this finally takes me into, like, the mega nerd realm of audio production gear. Like, not specifically just, like, guitar amplification or guitar pedal processing or, like, one specific instrument, but stuff for, like, recording those instruments. So things like um, mixers, rack mount preamplifiers, power amplifiers, equalizers, compressors, these kinds of things. I'm sure as audio podcast editors, you've heard of stuff like compressors and EQs before, right? Uh-huh. Yep. So... You probably, you know, like on Audacity or whatever program you're using, you can load in an equalization algorithm or plugin or a compressor algorithm or plugin. It doesn't cost you hundreds of dollars to do so. It often comes with the program. However, <laughs> there are, of course, vintage hardware pieces of equipment that these algorithms or plugins are, you know, trying to do the same job as or even trying to directly emulate a specific piece of hardware. So a prime example is the Universal Audio 1176 compressor. This was an outboard hardware piece of equipment that you put an audio signal through it, you have a couple controls on it, and it evens out the volume, essentially. There's tons of cheaper compressors you can buy out there currently. Many makes and brands, many different types, and so many of them seek to specifically emulate the various revisions of this compressor. So there's anywhere up from revision A to G, I believe, out there. I am looking at a listing on Reverb.com currently of a uh, Universal Audio Revision B, I believe, 1176 compressor that's going currently for, let's click into this. Uh, specifically so I can give you guys a very clear price for this. The revision B is currently going for... Ah, $16,773.50. Wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, what? No, what? No, absolutely not. No, put it back down. $16,700 for a old-ass compressor that's probably busted. That's antiques for you. <laughs> Especially when you have, like, so in the very logic program that I am running right now, on my voice at this very moment is a stock plugin that comes with logic emulation of an 1176 compressor. Not only that, they have three different variations of it for you to use. Oh, I, so... And I bet you wouldn't tell the difference if I had the $16,000 one sitting here and you were hearing my voice through that. Ah! Oh my god wait wow no now again <laughs> assumedly a lot of that value is because it's very difficult to find an original revision b 1176 out there they're rare like you're not going to just sit, find them sitting on the shelves but even so the current models of universal audio is 1176 of course they're like putting them out currently as well those are going for three thousand to four thousand dollars Basically, just based on the fact that they made the old ones that a lot of people used before. When I doubt the components actually cost that much money because there's no internal, like, microchip, as far as I know, no digital brain or anything like that. It's still the same analog components as before that are probably a little easier to get nowadays. So, you know, vintage gear and vintage emulations of gear. That does remind me very vaguely of, like, the um, tablet market. Oh, how so? So with drawing tablets, there is, you know, the big number one company, Wacom, and then half a dozen, like, copycat companies that cost, like, less than half sometimes. But Wacom is the big company that made the first set of drawing tablets, so now they just get to command a higher price on the market despite in many situations being less reliable. Right, yeah, like, so I'm sure this is absolutely not unique to audio equipment. I'm not sitting here saying like, oh my God, but I think maybe like the prices get kind of the most absurd. Yes, that is really insane. Like 16K for an audio evener outer, for an old audio evener outer. And people will pay that and then use it? Yes, assumedly in their studios where they're trying to record something. Who knows if they're actually like using it for a proper business or they just want to record their, you know, bedroom hobbyist sessions because they're, you know, a doctor or a lawyer with some side cash to spend <laughs> on their hobby. Imagine a doctor with like a mumble rap career that he's dropped this on. <laughs> 
I use the doctor or lawyer thing because like blues doctor or blues lawyer is like a sort of denigrating term that you see on guitarist forums for people that spend a shitload of money on vintage gear like this and only play like the same blues licks that have been played hundreds of millions times before and worse than other people. <laughs> oh my God, that's a term? Yes, blues lawyer. Oh, wow. If you told me blues doctor, I would have assumed that that was a complimentary term. So I'm glad I know that now. I won't call anyone that. It's kind of interchangeable. There's blues doctors, blues lawyers, and blues dads, of course. Blues dads tend to just be the sort of the mid-tier if you're not actually dropping serious cash on things. Yeah, see, I definitely wouldn't have understood that blues dad was uh, was vaguely insulting. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my, I think, classic examples where, like, if you've hung out in any sort of, like, audio gear nerd haven at all, everyone that, you know, those are the ones that you hear all the time. So I think for an audience that probably isn't familiar with how wacky uh, things can get in the audio realm, those are my clear examples. And obviously, this is even talking about, like, the modern era audiophile kind of stuff where we're talking about, like, well, my audio cables have gold tips on them therefore $500, please. Does that do anything, having gold tips? Well, supposedly it makes things sound better for reasons. Well, because it's expensive. Yes. And gold sounds expensive, right? Right When the electricity goes through it? Yeah, that's gotta be it. Well, (laughs) that's all I have to say unless you guys, you know, have any further queries for me. I was just gonna say that, like, the only other comparable thing I could think of was old sewing machines, except old sewing machines have almost no value despite being better working and more reliable than most new sewing machines. Oh, that is an interesting comparison. So it's almost like a complete inverse. (laughs) I was gonna say so. Of the situation going on here. So what makes the older sewing machines better, would you say? They're not made out of plastic and they don't have computers in them. Yeah, pretty much. Ah. So they don't snap in half for no reason and they can handle pretty much any material you throw into them. Ah. So, I mean, that is sort of comparable to a lot of like digital audio gear now where like, you know, if the software support runs out, you're just kind of fucked. You have a brick, a very expensive brick, essentially. So that's another a legitimate reason to only want to use like analog style audio gear as well, because, well, it does the thing and you can maybe find the part to fix it without having to replace a whole motherboard or something like that. Yeah, that's an interesting take, actually. Yeah. Just like analog as a intrinsic ownership is very I find that kind of fascinating yeah so I mean that's definitely a thing that I've had to contend with before where like I've had like sort of earlier revisions of this same foot pedal I've had I mean like they call it different things but it's essentially like just updates on the same technology with fancier CPUs and stuff like that but if you have an old version um, like let's say the Line 6 Pod HD 500 was the one I used to have they're just not supporting that thing anymore so you're gonna have to upgrade to all the Line 6 Helix gear right because you want the new fancy stuff and we're also not updating that old thing so if it breaks or the software doesn't work or you brick it or something good luck buddy that's an exciting new avenue of planned obsolescence i'd never considered before yep 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 whereas like you know even old vintage guitar amplifier heads you don't have to go to marshall to service or upgrade or fix your old vintage marshall guitar amplifier head you can just go to anyone that knows how them parts work which is markedly less complex than having to program a digital brain inside of it, usually. Wow. Once again, Dee, I think you were very right in bringing up the Wacom tablet because within the last few years or so, Wacom decided that one of their most popular lines of tablets, the bamboo tablets that almost every starting artist gets, um, were no longer supported. So they sat on an update that bricked all of them and now you can't even install the drivers anymore. Ooh, that's like malicious planned obsolescence. Yeah, because because they actively bricked them like on purpose, which I thought was uh, extra evil. Wow. A little bit. That is, wow. I feel like if I heard about anyone doing that in like the audio software realm, there would be like pitchforks. I mean, there's a reason that when uh, Adobe Creative Suite switched to a subscription-only model, a lot of artists were like, well, looks like I'm going to get really, really good at Corel Painter. (laughs) Yeah. Or sorry, what am I thinking of? Clip Studio Paint? Clip Studio Paint, yeah. (laughs) Clip Studio Paint saw, like, unprecedented, like, purchases after that happened. Yeah. And it turns out it's a better painting program than Photoshop ever was. So... And you can own previous versions if you really want. 
I actually do still have a copy of a previous version. I just do not like it. I was going to say, like, do, do you think there's people out there that are going like, well, this vintage software is clearly better using. I'm sure some, like, that is the case for some things where, like, you know, the update ruined the UI or something like that. But how far back do you think that goes? Do you think there's still someone out there with, like, a Windows 95 MS Paint that they're still making art on that thing? Because, well, that's the way I know how to do it. It's the best way. Oh, my God. You know who's going to be doing that is Ringo Starr, if anyone's going to do it. Actually, yeah, oh. it's true. <laughs> The only connection I have with that was the Skyrim update thing. Oh? Which you couldn't market too much because you can't trade games once they've been, like, registered. But I think, yeah, for a while, Skyrim updated the game in a way that, like, killed all the mods because they wanted to sell their official mods. Oh, right. I think I remember hearing about this. So then you had to, like, fight tooth and nail to keep your copy from updating if you had a pre-update copy so that you could keep your mods active. Oh, wow. I gotta have those huge titty Nords or else, I mean, what's the point? I gotta. Wait, I need Yassified Ball Growth. <laughs> You're right. I just got him Lash Extensions. Dee, what was that horror game Silent Hill ripoff Hideo Kojima worked on? Oh, PT. Yes. It wasn't a ripoff. It was supposed to be actual Silent Hill. Yes. And it was only available as a demo on which model of PlayStation? PlayStation 4. Yes. However, because it was only a demo, eventually PlayStation released an update that would remove it from your PlayStation. So now, PlayStations that haven't been updated that still have that demo installed go for fucking crazy money on eBay. Yeah. Because it's the only way you can experience PT. And, like, literally you can't connect it back to the internet because as soon as you do, it'll update. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I just think it's very fascinating that, like, musicians have been on the horrible frontier of digital obsolescence and all that. I mean, who knows if, like, we were the first people to experience... I doubt that. I'm sure there's, like, you know... Like you said, like, art software, especially as a tool or perhaps even there's like some weird like version of Salesforce out there that that was way better or something like that right like, the original quickbooks was the only good quickbooks <laughs> yeah and it was <laughs> i will sell you this vintage windows machine with quickbooks version 2.3 for $16,000 it has a it's warmer a, sound fucking original scrum you won't get addicted <laughs> like <laughs> uncut scrum program from the 1990s yeah so um as a consumer of these tools i would say that it's always been funny to me how i don't have enough of an outside perspective to say if this is only music gear or audio gear where so much of it is trying so hard to stay in the past because well those worked really well so why should we try anything different or new obviously it's not the only one but i think it might be experiencing the strangest and per, or like I don't know like more unique aspects of it like you said there's there's a lot of things that are usually tools that get turned into collectibles but like I'm kind of stunned by how much of these particular like audio equipment pieces their value seems to be governed very heavily by like mythology yes absolutely <laughs> And like urban legend like yes there's a very little rooting with like skyrim if you give me an early disc of skyrim there is a tangible real thing i can say that makes it better than the new one yes i can mod this one but with 95 percent of what you've described it's just like a vibe like the yeah. vibes for my guitar will be way better exactly sort of related to that i guess one final sort of little story is there's a pedal builder out there, Josh Scott, builder of JHS pedals. Um, and he has a YouTube channel where he talks a lot about like guitar pedal history. And like, he, it's kind of very interesting to watch, even though some people have some opinions about Josh Scott and his involvement with certain churches. But aside from that, um, <laughs> he can be very informative and he has a very popularly watched channel for pedal stuff as he's a builder and an enthusiast and almost somewhat of a historian on them in some ways. And he released a video about a certain manufacturer's pedals. So there's a manufacturer called Behringer. You may have heard of them as, um, you know, podcasters because they get by far the cheapest audio gear around is Behringer equipment. And they're notorious basically for just straight ripping other people's circuits, rehousing it in a very similar package and selling it for much, much, much cheaper. Much to the chagrin of like audio snobs and a lot of other people. So they had their own line of guitar pedals, which were much cheaper emulations or almost direct rips of other popular guitar pedals. They were housed in plastic cases instead of like metal or something like that. So they would break very easily, but you would get the same kind of sound from them. And often they would be sold from anywhere before like literally $15 to maybe the most expensive one was like $60 to $70. 
until Josh Scott released a video saying, hey, Behringer pedals actually sound fine if you want to use them. And then for like four or five months, the prices of used Behringer pedals doubled to more than new. Whoa. That's nuts. Because like, assumingly there were some pedals that you couldn't get because they were like a little bit out of stock for like a couple of weeks. And people would try to gouge you on that for like 15 bucks extra. Damn. So it was still like going from $15 to $30, but like still, buddy, really? Just because Josh said it was fine to do this and they sound good? Yeah. Because Josh said so. Just literally one guy says like, I like them. And that just changes an entire market? For a brief period, it settled back down at this point, but there was, like, at least for a couple of weeks after to a couple of months, it was it got really weird with the Behringer pedals. That's so surreal. How do you live in this space? It's so surreal. You know, I just try to go purely by what I think sounds best instead of fancy price tag. Although, you know, there is sometimes that higher price tag does make you feel like it better. And there is some level of you get what you pay for, like I said, with these cheaper Behringer items often the housing is cheaper plastic and you know it's made by like Behringer has like a mini city in China where they employ people and let them live and like they have huge factories where they output these things you know by the reams so of course the quality is going to be a little bit less painstaking than you know built by hand stuff assumedly usually you know, as a guitar player, I most of my recent guitar purchases, which haven't been many, but I would say the last three purchases I've been made have been from custom builders instead of like off of, you know, just manufacturing line stuff, just because, yes, I do feel that those are better. Often, I wouldn't say that, you know, the raw feel of them is worth the three to five times price that I might have to pay for a custom thing, but I'm paying for the labor of someone doing it by hand. It's not just, you know, raw sheer quality of like what I feel in my hands it's also it's taking this one person more time and I have to pay them for their time so happy to hear you say that so many people do not believe in that Right now, I'm actually waiting on an instrument from a guy in Poland that I put a deposit on last year, and he's had a lot of delays because he got COVID and, like, a lot of tax law changes happened, so that really slowed him down. So he originally quoted me, like, six months after my order, and it's now, like, 12, 13 months. And honestly, like, I'm fine with that because he's one guy, and it's, like, he's going to hit bumps in the road harder than other people. And my other Polish-made guitar by a different person is quite lovely, so I'm expecting good things. <laughs> it's really how that goes. Even just in the brag area, that's a one-of-one, one, baby. Yeah, also that. It, that's kind of the other, other reason that I'm paying a premium on that kind of a thing is because I got to tell them to, like, okay, put this specific kind of inlay, this kind of pickup, this kind of wood. No one else is going to have this specific thing. My parameters were essentially make it very purple, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, make it purple. That was my major thing that I told them. $3,000 for that. <laughs> And that's valid. Yes. That, that is the world I live in. Do you think that part of this problem is fueled by, I don't know if this is an unkind thing to say, I feel like a lot of people who mess around with audio equipment from, like, especially for music, I think they tend to overbuy. Oh, yes. I think that it gets a little addictive buying equipment. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so, like, it seems like these two things are very, very carefully intertwined because, like, these are people who seem hungry to buy new things. Absolutely. Because, I mean, it's easier to buy a new thing and make yourself feel like this will make me sound better instead of just practicing my craft. <laughs> Like the Wacom situation again. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, to be fair, like, you know, poor artist blames his tools and all that. But at a certain point, yes, a better tool will help you more. Yeah. There is facts behind that. There is objectively better tools that you could be using. But again, because I'm so into this community, it seems like there's no other thing out there that has like specific slang words they use for the mental feeling of wanting to buy more stuff to make themselves feel better. Whoa. That's, yeah, that's pretty weird. Yes, it's known as gas. I've got the bad gas, people will say. Gas? For gear acquisition syndrome. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, you hear a lot of, like, those blues dads using that one more than uh, people of my generation, but it's out there. I still can't believe we're in a place where calling someone a blues daddy is, like, a bad thing. Yeah, well, I mean... Seems like blues guys would love that. Right? <laughs> Maybe I've steeped myself far too long in these audio gear forms, which 
deep in these waters. Honestly, like the past two or three years, I've been doing so much less of it and it's so much better. I mean, this like pricey guitar was like the last major audio purchase that I've made that, you know, wasn't just like a necessary upgrade because, oh no, my audio interface isn't interfacing with my new computer or something like that. Or my old computer, I had to upgrade because it was just so slow and chonky. Yeah. So I, I try to just wear things to their limit and use them as much as I can. I have a point of pride, actually, that my tube amplifier head that I use for my live music, I've used the same one since I was 15. (laughs) It is the same one. Oh, wow. Shit. Yeah, I've had it since I was 15. I'm 33 now, and I'm particularly proud of that because so many people swap that stuff out, you know, all the time. And I'm like, nope, that's mine. That's the one. I think that's worth being proud about. It is. (laughs) At least I tell myself that. (laughs) Plus, eventually, like, someday you're going to have that and everyone's going to be going gaga over that model. And they're going to be like, wow, damn it. Why did I swap it out? You're going to have one. I know. Uh, Hopefully it'll turn into a gold mine. I mean, that's what we all hope. The important thing is that you like it. Yeah. And then I'll cash in. Fuck sentimental value. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, listen, we all have our fucking limits of sentimentality, you know? Yep. All right. Well, that's it for me, y'all. I just want to say thank you, Chris, for educating us on the wild and wonderful and weird world of collectible musical equipment. And highly superstitious, it seems. (laughs) Yes, extremely superstitious. And again, this is very surface level stuff. So, you know, I mean, you could fall down so many deeper rabbit holes and so many YouTube channels comparing one compressor to another and like, hey, how does that even out the audio in comparison to this one? Sure is even. Now, Chris, if people wanted to hear more of your hot takes specifically on books, what podcast should they listen to? You can find me on the Terrible Book Club by searching for Terrible Book Club on any podcatcher app out there or going to www.terriblebookclub.com where you can hear me using my audio equipment to edit that podcast with all sorts of fun music and sounds and sometimes custom music that I make. If you enjoy the editing on our Karnacki episodes, that was Chris. Yes, it me. Thank him. I was going to say that I'm on select AF episodes as well. (laughs) A fine selection. I bet you can't tell the difference. I bet you can't tell the difference. Like, honestly, like, if it's not a Karnacki episode, you probably won't tell if it's me or Ken. And if people wanted to hear examples of your music, what bands or musical projects should they be tuning into? You can check out my electronic music at yearn.bandcamp.com, Y-E-A-R-N.bandcamp.com. You can check out my death metal band, Graveborn, at gravebornma.bandcamp.com. M-A like Massachusetts, because there was another Graveborn that took the other URL, so fuck. Um, That's (laughs) G-R-A-V-E. B-O-R-N-M-A.bandcamp.com. You can also check out my Power Rangers themed death metal side project, Scourge of Eltar, at S-C-O-U-R-G-E-O-F-E-L-T-A-R.bandcamp.com. Hell yeah. I also offer my audio editing services if you're looking to hire someone for your podcast or audio production. And we do recommend. You can contact me at chris.remusewitz at gmail.com. C-H-R-I-S dot long Polish last name incoming R-A-M-U-S-I. I-E-W-I-C-Z at gmail.com. I'm still setting up a website for that. <laughs> Woo! It's been three years and we haven't set one up with this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and by three years, I mean four. <laughs> Sometimes it just be like that. Yes. If you would like to suggest episode topics or just say hello, you can email us directly antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or you can tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. If you would like to listen to deleted scenes or listen to our special bonus episode presentation of the Victorian Penny Dreadful Varian the Vampire, you can hit up our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks. Special shout out to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. And thank you in particular for listening. Au revoir!